Millions of frontline workers keep our economy running and are provided with the latest technology to do their jobs. But digital adoption, especially by frontline workers, is really hard. This is Frontline Innovators. We explore how to overcome challenges and achieve success when we empower our essential workers. I'm Justin Lake. And I'm Gene Signorini. Together, we speak with experts who are leading the way and driving digital transformation to the front line. This podcast is sponsored by Skillful on a mission to help frontline workers learn and use the technology needed to succeed in their jobs. Welcome to the Frontline Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Lake, and we have another great episode lined up for you today. My guest today is the IT business partner for innovation for the city of Las Vegas. Please welcome to the show, Don Jacobson. Hello, Don. Good morning, Justin. Glad to be on the show. I'm so glad that you're here today, and I really enjoyed the prep call. I think most of our guests uh, and listeners by now know that um, we always have a prep call with our um our participants before the actual podcast. And I just really enjoyed the conversation that you and I had. And I have so many notes from our conversation and I can't wait to get into it with our audience today. So um, let's start off the show as we always do and ask what you think is the biggest challenge facing the frontline workforce today. Well, uh, that's a very good question. And actually you can see I'm coming to you from a desk in an office. So I would not classify myself as a frontline worker uh, while I worked for the federal workforce for about 20 years and now have been in local government nearly uh, 25 years. Most of that time has been uh, spent in an office. So in answer to your question, I think I'd give you a different answer today than maybe I would have given you back in 2019. You know, with the onset of the pandemic and and during and afterwards, uh, I think everyone public and private sector alike, they experienced the, the great resignation as they termed it. Many people um, reassess their, their work, reassess their life, and determined that that was a time for them, either ideal for them to move, or maybe just circumstances were forcing their hand to make a, a move. And one of the reasons that people cited for moving from one position to another, one job to another, even one city to another, was stress in their current situation. That stress, um, they cited several factors. It's uh, money stress or work-life balance, or perhaps it's personal safety on, on the job or personal growth. But in any case, any of those factors created some sort of stress that they didn't either didn't want to deal with anymore or they thought that maybe the proverbial grass was greener on the, the other side. And so they they made the move and, and many more considered making the, the move. Um, and some of the, the causes, I think, of that stress, like the work-life balance or the safety, for instance, was because these frontline workers Many of them experienced, particularly during the pandemic and sometimes coming out of the pandemic with uh, the, uh, the paradigm shift and changes into how their operations were, were uh, understaffed shifts, right? So if you're working on a shift and you don't feel that there's enough people to get the job done or get the job done uh, safely, that's going to create stress for you and maybe 
you have to work overtime because there's not enough staff, so your work-life balance is impacted. Uh, another thing would be poor cross-team communication. So even if all of your team members are there, uh, but they're scattered either uh, out on the floor or, or out in, in the, doing the, the field work and, and you're in one truck and they're in their other trucks in different uh, neighborhoods in the, in the case of the city. Um, if the team is not communicating effectively on the work to be done and their progress on the, the work and whether they need a, assistance or not, that, that creates a stress in, in their work day. And then lastly, uh, lack of, of recognition, uh, particularly, I think, uh, more so for the frontline workers than office workers, and certainly for supervisors or, or management. For the most part, your work may be invisible to your management and supervisor. It's certainly visible to the, the public. And so, but the public is not the, the person giving you the raise or, or the promotion. So the lack of recognition for your, your contributions, that, that creates a, an added layer of stress. So I'd say in an organization like the city of Las Vegas, which is obviously in the public sector, the president the private sector, frontline workers in the city still face similar challenges and they still express similar frustrations or doubts. And I think it would help to set the scene a little bit by giving some background on the organization that is uh, in the city of Las Vegas. And I think when we talk today, Justin, I'll, I'll probably refer be referring to the city as an organization, right? Not a, not a company. So the city of Las Vegas, I think we were founded around uh, 1905 and our initial charter uh, was for two services to be provided. One was the city clerk so that people could record their land deeds and the other thing was a volunteer fire department. Everything else that has become the city today with public safety uh, departments, with our public works uh, departments, operations and maintenance, parks and recreation, and so forth, all of that has grown from that initial city charter. So a bureaucracy has grown. And, uh, and it's kept, kept pace with the growth of the, the Las Vegas uh, valley. Um, but anytime an organization grows bigger and more complex, then there's going to be potential for uh, breakdown in, in communication between the people who are out there doing the, the frontline work, whether it's filling a pothole or uh, sweeping a street or guarding a, a pool, and the people who are back in the proverbial city hall, um, that are the administrators, the people who are, are making sure that um, that these workers uh, are able to communicate with one, one another, that they're able to get uh, paid on, on time, that all of their other sort of uh, administrative needs are met. So by setting that stage there, I think as we go on in our conversation here today, we can keep going back to what the city of Las Vegas looks like today as an organization delivering services to the community, which is Las Vegas, entertainment capital of the world, global brand, um, 42 million visitors a year on pace to probably by 2030, maybe even sooner hit 52 million. If we have two and a half million people that live in the Valley, 650,000 live in Las Vegas itself, 
we're talking an extra million people every single week that are coming to Las Vegas. So roughly our, our population increases by a third every week. And they all want to be entertained and they all want to be fed. They want to all have a, a good time. And we want this, the same forum. You probably experienced that on your recent trip to the Las recent Vegas. Trip. Hopefully you were entertained, you got fed, you had a good time, and you'll come back again because that's our goal. Yeah. You know, it's really when you and I first met and we talked about all of what goes on behind the scenes in a city like yours, in, in any major city, but it was particularly interesting um, to really think about it. Las Vegas is a pretty tightly uh, you know, dense city. There's a lot going on in a very small geographic area. And, you know, most of the time on the show and in my business life, I'm talking to for-profit companies. So it's it's a little bit different. But what I found kind of fascinating is that as different as it is, it's actually very much the same, right? You have, you know, you may not refer to the public as customers, although I'd be curious to kind of hear how you think about that. But, you know, there are customers, there are taxpayers that are expecting certain services from the city and there's certain upkeep that needs to be done. And while the motivations may be a little bit different than a for-profit company, how you actually operationalize around that actually has a lot of similarities and the efficiencies that you're looking for and the need to track work that's actually happening in the field and make sure that the work is getting done. I mean, I think we all probably just take it for granted. You know, it's it's hidden in plain sight in front of us in all of the cities that that we live in. Uh, I'd be curious to just kind of hear from you some of the things that you think really look like enterprise functions just inside a city. I mean, we, we talked about the guys, you know, managing the traffic lights and things like that and replacing street lights and stuff like that when we had our, our first call together. Are there other functions that you can think about that kind of look just like a, a business operation. It's just that there's not money exchanging hands in the traditional sense. Right. Um, yeah, we certainly don't want the, the public uh, to take us for granted, but we do, for the most part, like to be in, invisible, right? Uh, we, we want you to have that sense of, of safety without seeing an officer on every corner. We want you to feel that sense that your community is clean and, and orderly without seeing, you know, people out there every day abating graffiti and, and sweeping up trash and filling in and potholes and everything. And uh and you know back to your 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 point there, I think we call them the public, uh sometimes citizens or collectively the community. And right. and that's uh you know kind of our, our slogan is building community to to make uh, life better. So, you know, that's, that's our mission is we recognize this community and that the community is people. It's, it's not the land, it's not the building, it's on the land and everything, even though the bureaucracy that we've uh, created is all about the land, right? So er basically any town is dirt, it's parcels. And those parcels are zoned one way or another. They're residential or they're commercial and they get rezoned and rezoned and rezoned. And then eventually somebody develops that land and they either build that commercial property or they build that residence. And throughout that process, all the the record of all that rezoning and the record of the, the construction of the residence or the business, all of that is a lot of paperwork, right? There's 
um, inspections that are done. There's fees uh, that are, are paid. And then once somebody moves into that residence or a business opens up in that commercial property, then there's even more uh, recording that goes on, more inspections that are done, more fees that are paid, uh, more uh, applications to file. So we do have an enterprise application that is basically the record of that parcel over time, you know, that we can go back to if necessary. Say in the case of a commercial building has a, a fire, right? First thing people are going to want to know is, has that building been regularly inspected? Did it have a, a functioning uh, a fire suppression system? Were there fire extinguishers? Did it have a record of previous fires? Uh, those sorts of things. So it's very important for us to keep an accurate and accessible record of everything that went on um, with that um, that commercial property leading up to the point where maybe there, there was a, a fire. And then, of course, there's things that we learn if, if a fire were to occur that we want to record so that we can prevent fires um, in, in the future, or if a fire were to occur, how to mitigate it, maybe arrive on the scene faster and so forth. So all of that is a way of saying there's an awful lot of data and uh, we need to manage and, and protect that data uh, effectively. But also it's very important for us to make that data accessible to the, the public for people who can make use of it. We're very transparent in the data that we keep. So uh, if anybody were to Google um, Las Vegas open data, it would take them to a portal. And in that portal, they would see different tiles. And those tiles basically are a reflection of what all of the operations that are ongoing at the city. It's basically how we're organized, the mission of each component of our organization, and then their progress towards fulfilling their goals and objectives for the years based on the priorities which are set by the elected officials, which are set by the their constituents who voted right. them into right. office in the first place. So you can see, for example, in, uh, say, Public Works, what their mission is and their goals are their progress towards the goals. You can even drill down and see the key performance indicators that in, that uh, indicate um, progress towards the goal. And then you can drill down even further and you can even see the data set behind it. That's basically the evidence, if you will, of that that progress. That's actually and, fascinating. And that that yeah, level of transparency is is fa fascinating and something that's very different from traditional for-profit businesses who would not expose right, that level right. of granularity to the public, nor are they obligated to, right? Yeah, there's an organization called the Sunlight Foundation that typically ranks the city uh, very high, would put as high as number one in terms of transparency, in terms of the quality and, and quantity of data that we make accessible on our open data site, which all of those data sets are downloadable. We would encourage people to mash that data with other data, right? So you could compare, say, the operations of the city of Las Vegas versus North Las Vegas or city of Henderson or Clark County or uh, any other uh, 
municipality in terms of services that are provided and how we're doing um, with regard to providing those services. Now, you can even go out on the, our site and you can see our budget, basically line item budget, and then you can see our expenditures, right? Basically every single check, if you will, that the city writes. And so you can go through that data and you can, and you can look into it that, okay, if this investment was made, say, on roadways, how did that impact environmental quality, um, uh, impact on mobility uh, in the, the community? And so that's stuff that, well, we may not have the time and resources to look that deeply ourselves. By making that data accessible to others, they can, um, they can draw their own inferences uh, or create their own stories from that. Now, to get back to frontline workers uh, for a moment, the frontline workers are contributors to that data. So when our frontline workers are out there inspecting a sewer manhole cover, or they're out there um, uh, inspecting a, a new water heater that's been put into a residence, they're entering the data about that inspection uh, into the enterprise system. That data in turn, you know, can be made available to the open data website. Certainly every, every piece of data that the city collects is not out there yet, right? For the most part, internally, we look and, and we say what data could be useful to the public. And in other cases, the public says, this data would be useful, we don't see it out there. And so we meet on a regular basis to um, basically vote on, uh, if you will, um, what data sets to put put out there, uh, prioritizing the, what is most um, asked for or needed by the, the public. So again, back to the frontline workers, we went through a, an ambitious uh, long-term program where everybody uh, employed by the city learned how to be a data ambassador, right? That they were a creator of data, a contributor to the the overall uh, data sets that are used to, to manage uh, the city and to understand the importance of the accuracy of the, the data that they're entering, the timeliness of the data, and then how they can use data themselves and how others may use their data. So it's not just a frontline worker, it's not just checking a box because they got a task done. They're checking a box because what they've done helps uh, contribute to the community being better and the public, the taxpaying public, seeing the results of their tax dollars at work. So this is actually really interesting because this is a very different motivation for the data collection activities that would typically happen with a frontline workforce. Most of the time, or at least many times, in a commercial operation, the motivation for that is more of a kind of a customer satisfaction view of things, right? Did my work order get complete? Did my delivery get complete? Did all the things that I actually had delivered show up on my invoice, right? Those kinds of things. In this case, there's a, a level of accountability back in this level of transparency that's fascinating, but it also puts a lot of pressure on the organization to make sure then that your frontline team members are actually using the technology. I mean, this is what I spend right. all of my day thinking about 
is your frontline workers have to use the technology the way that it was intended because there are real repercussions then if it's not feeding data back accordingly. And and you said something I I, I you, you mentioned uh, manhole covers before and in our uh, previous call you talked about the city of Las Vegas has 50,000 of everything was was a quote that I remember you saying you said 50,000 yes. street lights 50,000 manhole covers I'm sure those aren't the exact numbers but the point was you have a lot of assets in the organization that you need to track and be accountable for. And the, the men and women that are out there on the front lines actually servicing and maintaining and inspecting all of that equipment, there, there's a lot there's a lot of assets out there for, for you to track. So how are you making sure that the frontline workforce is actually doing what they're supposed to be doing and, and that you have a high level of compliance with that? Yeah, you know, and I, I'm glad you brought up uh, my statement about 50,000 of everything, because obviously we don't have 500 employees to uh, inspect or maintain those 50,000 of anything, right? We right. may have five, we may have even one. Yeah. And so we're relying more and more on uh, technology to uh, to aid us in ensuring that those 50,000 assets, whatever they are, that they're that they're maintained free, uh, frequently or as often as they should be maintained, that they're doing well in our harsh environment, right? We got the hot desert heat, the, the blazing sun, and it and it's still gets pretty cold yep. uh, in in the winter. Um, so ensuring that uh, that those uh, assets, because for the most part they are tied to public safety, right? Smooth roads and ensure that you have smooth mobility, uh, functioning uh, traffic signals and streetlights ensure that, you know, you have uh, safe neighborhoods. So it's it's very critical that that technology um, is maintained in the way that it should be maintained. And so we employ other technology to ensure that the workers who are out there uh, making sure that everything is working uh, properly uh, have the information available to them in the field to uh, to do their work. So uh, tech adoption, we can talk about that a little bit about and how, how to do it effectively. We all wanna streamline operations and we all wanna deliver excellent customer service. So with the right, right tools, the frontline staff they can do that and they can accomplish both of them. So digital adoption, that's more likely than tech simple to, to use. In other words, it's, it's intuitive. So it's more likely uh, that digital adoption occurs if the technology works fast, both in terms of connectivity and in terms of the hands-on uh, effort that's required, basically the process or procedure that the, the frontline worker follows. So frontline workers, they operate in a different environment than, than office workers, uh, obviously. And, and I'll take a little segue here into, I was during the pandemic, taken from a desk job to a frontline worker job uh, because during the pandemic, um, we imposed a thing that, you know, mask wearing was required, distancing was required, and we imposed that on uh, businesses and any place where the, the public gathers. So during uh, that period, we needed basically people out in the field to ensure that that was happening, that, that businesses were making sure customers wore masks, that they were ensuring that uh, the distance requirements 
uh, were kept. And so because we had to pivot very uh, quickly, um, we deployed people like me, a desktop worker, out into the field to do those inspections. So what does that mean? That's my first experience as a frontline worker in a very long time. So I came to appreciate and realize how important technology is to communicate to you as a person out in the field, what your queue of work is, right? Which businesses I, I should be going to, recording of my work, which ones I, I inspected, and doing that all um, simply and easily and using uh, connected tools, digital tools to do that rather than relying on the old clipboard and a, and a, and a piece of paper. So, uh, so back to my original point, frontline workers operating in a different environment than desktop workers, uh, obviously. So when they have a mobile tool, um, it's the screen is different than me looking at a screen at a desk, right? So can the screen be seen whether they're driving in a truck or, or they're out in the field? Is the device easy uh, to hold? Is it lightweight? Are the haptics any good? So when they're scrolling or, or clicking on, on buttons to go to the next step, is that uh, reliable and speedy? So integrating tech into anyone's daily routine, you need to know where and when they're gonna use that, that tool. So when you have multiple applications with these mobile uh, tools, it's gotta be easy to switch between them and preferably that switch from one, one application to another, say between a, a service request and a, and a work order, it should be made within the application itself without you having to log into two different uh, applications, taking a step here, going to a different screen and taking a step there. For the most part, we like to be able to feed information in one into the, the other and vice versa. So that, that's talking about the device itself and, and the use of the device. The other thing is how we get the workers to adopt that digital technology other than just using it day to day. And one way of doing that is leading by example. So digital adoption, that's that's more than just a single piece of, of software or device. It represents a shift in the way an organization like the city or in the private sector or company interacts with its employees and with the, the customers. So a leadership team that embraces uh, digital helps demonstrate how important it is. And, and so when I say leading by example, they're using the same tools that their frontline workers are using. So leading by example can take different forms depending on who the leader uh, is. An executive, I wouldn't expect them to use the same tools as a frontline worker all the time. But if those employees see the executive actually using a tech tool that, that inspires some confidence in them. Um, managers and team leaders who work directly with the frontline workers, they should be among the first to adopt new digital tools so that they understand the feedback that they're getting from their workers. They can see it for themselves and not just it be an antidote uh, that they that they can't really uh, appreciate. And ideally those managers, those supervisors, they should be empowered by the executives 
to help their teams overcome any challenges uh, adopting the new technology. And one way to do that, what we did done is re recruiting basically technology ambassadors to help shift culture. And so I mentioned our, our data ambassador uh, program that we may have within each department what I'll call a data wrangler, right? That's the person who best knows what data sets, what data is being created by a department, who's responsible for ensuring that that data is accurate and timely and protected. But also, um, they are the ones that handhold, if you will, the people who are struggling with that whole concept of data, their role in data creation and data protection and data use. So empowering executives, managers, frontline workers uh, to all be ambassadors in this collective ambition of embracing data, embracing digital, that's I think crucial uh, to any organization, whether it be public or, or private sector. So the people on the front line, not managers, who are really excited about using technology on, on their job, that's that's the goal that, that we strive to achieve because then they're interested in helping their coworkers who may be struggling getting over their fears about this, this new way of working. And is that the tech ambassadors that you described? I, I would call them data ambassadors, right? Okay. Yeah. So I th I thought I heard two different phrases that I wanted to um, dig into a little bit. I, I thought I heard you say tech ambassadors and then a data wrangler. Are those, yeah. did, did I merge those or separate something that should have been one? Yeah. A, a data wrangler, uh, well, obviously they're embedded in the business, right? And so they know um, better than say a user of a data or a, a creator of data, uh, how that data is used maybe by other departments in the city or utilized by the public or utilized by executives and even elected officials to make decisions about deploying resources, about investing in, in capital and, and those sorts of, of decisions that need to be based on, on data. Whereas the data ambassador is really an employee of the city of Las Vegas to understand they're creating data on a daily basis, right? And their data is being used by everyone up the chain. And it may even be used by the, the public, right? If if the if the citizen makes a complaint or request or a question and a frontline worker takes care of that complaint or answers that question, um, then basically that frontline worker has had an interaction with the public. It may be virtual. Right, it may, it may not be face to face, but in that case, uh, the citizen goes away satisfied because they got they got an answer, they got an answer in a in a timely fashion, and most importantly, they got an accurate answer. Right, nobody wants to call to say uh, how much is owed on my sewer bill or when's the date of next payment I have to make on my sewer bill, and they get an inaccurate answer, and it's not because. Um, the the person who gave them the answer um, necessarily got it wrong, but maybe the wrong answer was given to them. And so we strive for complete accuracy on the data that that it's used to make decisions, whether it's to answer a question uh, posed by the public or to make a multi million dollar capital investment. Yeah. 
That's fascinating. Are these terms, it, I, maybe uh, everybody uses this term and I just hadn't heard it before, but it makes a lot of sense, this concept of a data wrangler. Is that just a term that you use or is that yeah, kind that, of embedded that, in your culture? A, that's a term I use. Uh, there is a term or a title that we actually have in the information, innovation and technologies department. It's called a business partner. So a business partner, uh, when you think of the organization of the city, we probably have a dozen different departments. And I'll say these departments are maybe organized in communities of interest, like public safety being a community of interest. So you'd have fire services, right? Fire, the fire department in there. You'd have the municipal court in there. You would have our detention facility, the jail under uh, public safety. And so you would have a business partner in the IT department who would be embedded in that public safety community of interest. So they know the operations of that department, their pains, their challenges, um, their ambitions and, and their goals, and can advise them on a technology level, what enterprise solution that they might consider right? Because we don't want to keep delivering point solutions that it's only going to work for municipal court. If there's a way that we can take care of a challenge that many court faces that can be deployed across the enterprise so that finance can use the same thing, that uh, public works can, can utilize it, we're going to look for an enterprise uh, solution uh, because that's one that's less expensive to maintain, right? If you have a thousand, if we have 50,000 applications, <laughs> right. uh, that's gonna be tough to manage. But if we have a handful of enterprise applications and then maybe a few dozen solutions, it's gonna be much easier uh, for us to manage uh, both in terms of the IT department as a service organization and for the um, organization of the, the city overall. That makes a lot of sense. And and that just speaks to what it is kind of got me so fascinated about the operations of a city. I mean, even just in, in one sentence, you just talked about prison operations and fire and uh, you know, police and you know, and that's not even speaking about the the infrastructure like streets and public works, all, all the other things that that come into that. So it's a a really complex organization that rolls up a lot of functions that we would typically see in a you know commercial entity. But you're you're doing it all obviously in a single city, and uh, it's just fascinating to to hear you describe that. The, yeah, you I could know, really have a, a podcast uh, on each department in the the city. Right? That's exactly how they utilize technology. <laughs> yeah, that that's exactly where my head's at because I think each one of those organizations inside the city or underneath the city umbrella could be like a, an entity of itself. But to the point that you just made. It's you don't want them all out there making completely independent decisions of one another, even though they probably have some autonomy and they're led by different leaders in the organization. From a technology standpoint, you want to find some synergies to the extent possible um, so that you don't have fire and police and public works all going out making independent you know, technology decisions. So I love that role of the business partner. Uh, I see that a lot in successful businesses where they have IT professionals kind of planted inside the business to represent uh, you know, a, a technology professional and perspective from the IT department, but to also make sure that the needs of you know, that um, 
that that group inside the organization uh, are, are being met. And so it's I, I love to hear that the city of Las Vegas is implementing that strategy as well. I, I knew we were going to just have way too many topics to try to talk about. And so we're, we're already coming up on the end here. Well, I'd love to just have you maybe just kind of close us out with any advice that you can share with our listeners. Uh, I'm really fascinated by a comment that you talked about in, in terms of supporting the technology ambassadors to help shift culture. And I'd love to hear if you can just kind of close us out with some advice on how to nurture those tech ambassadors, how to make sure that those early adopters in the field have been identified and how we can ensure that they're playing a role in supporting the rest of the organization with technology adoption. Yeah, so speaking to uh, to the organization, not necessarily any individual function or uh, element in the organization. So a key factor in digital adoption is understanding the, the benefits, the benefits to every party, whether it be the public, the citizen, the resident, the tourist, the, the business owner, or internally, whether you're an executive or you're, you're the person that, that's out in the, the field. So everybody needs to understand and appreciate the, the benefits. So reception is better if workers know how adopting technology will help them be more successful at, at their job. So what we try to do is focus on challenges that technology will solve and how it's going to make everybody's workday easier. Now, people also like to understand the larger strategic goals of the organization's initiatives. So it's not just your specific uh, job function, but how does your role contribute to the overall success of your section, of your department, of your community of interest, and of the city as a, as a whole. So will this, um, I guess answering the question, will this solution, this digital um, uh, tool, is it gonna help the organization be more efficient? Is it gonna improve customer service? You need to share your expectations for the, any new technology and how you're going to measure results. So, you know, you were talking about accountability earlier. Well, that's both sides, right? Making the workers more accountable for the work that they're they're getting done, but also um, holding accountable that um, that this technology is actually improving service delivery. That we're getting out to the scene of a fire faster. That we're filling more potholes in over the course uh, of a month. So it's how you deliver that, the communication that you use to deliver that, well, that, that's critical. You've got it delivered in a way that your team will understand. And certainly somebody who is an executive is going to understand, understand differently because they have a different experience and different uh, background than somebody who's a, a field worker, a frontline worker. Yeah. So you need to understand your audience. And so when you're articulating, as I'm attempting to, to do, um, the, the benefits of the, the tools and, and uh, how they will help a person in their role contribute to uh, really having a, a well-oiled machine, if you will. So... There's several different traditional channels that, that we use to do that, right? 
uh, supervisors send out emails. We have verbal announcement from managers. Uh, we have training uh, sessions. Um, but I think uh, connecting with people on a personal level, having that relationship, building that trust, um, the only way that you're going to do that is you empathize with people. You empathize with their discomfort with change, that right. they're uh, that they may be uncomfortable with uh, being handed this new tool and new way of, of doing things. And so you, you got to let people know that your organization is going to support them throughout the technology adoption from the, the training to the practice. You need to give them ample time uh, to practice to uh, frequently checking with them uh, in how they're using it in the field because people by nature are going to look for the simplest way to do something, right? Right. For them. So they're not interested in 10 different ways of accomplishing the same thing. They just want to know the shortcuts, right? So you might as well give them uh, a tool that is the, the shortcut. And if they want to use the longer way to get to it, because not everybody arrives at, at the same um, uh, desti destination the same way. Um, so, so back to the point support them throughout the entire process and support them once it's been deployed. And basically be positive, I'd say, be positive about the, the benefits, be positive about their role, be positive about your vision for not only solutions today, but those that are coming on the horizon. Yeah. AI, right? <laughs> Most Ca causes, causes fear and excitement. <laughs> yes, exactly. People see one headline, you know, workforce cuts because AI is replacing jobs. But then other people see the headline that says, well, your job's going to get a lot easier and you can do the things you really want to do because AI is going to take care of those mundane routine uh, tasks right. and everything. It, it, it remains to, to be seen. Uh, I'm very excited about it. Um, but I guess the key thing is having accurate, up-to-date information at your hands to make a decision, whether you're a frontline worker, uh, a manager, supervisor, an executive, or an elected official. That's both the biggest hurdle and the biggest opportunity uh, for us. Uh, empowerment, that's a word that's you know thrown around a lot. Empowering frontline workers is, is crucial because they're the heart of your organization, if you're a public right. sector or your company, if you're a private sector. They're the face uh, to your customers or to your citizens. They make your operations run smoothly. Um, so rolling out new technology to help retain them, going back to that, the great resignation that we had with the pandemic, we it costs a lot to recruit an, uh, an employee and uh, we should invest in retaining them so we don't see them walking out the door, you know, two years after we hired them. Yeah. Don, I need to wrap it up there, but I, I want to thank you. And I'm so glad that we closed out on this topic. And I just want to reinforce something that you said at the beginning of that answer, which is when, when we talk about nurturing those ambassadors, we often talk about the kind of what's in it for them. What we miss, and you mentioned this, and I think it's really important. I want the audience to hear this is the impact that their actions will have on their colleagues. 
I think that's a really important thing that you brought up. I'm glad that you did it. I think it's something that we don't talk about enough. I think the what's in it for them and and the, uh, of course, the, the empathy for that individual is always important. But I think one thing I have found, and I think this is actually disproportionately impactful to frontline workers who are part of a team, who are part of a tribe of their other frontline workers, they care to know what the impact is on their colleagues. And I'm really glad that you raised that point. So I hate that we do have to wrap it up, but I thank you very much for being on the show today. Uh, this has been such a fascinating view into kind of another angle of behind the scenes of the global economy. And uh, really appreciate you sharing with us today. I, I enjoyed our, our time together and I hope to do it again. Thank you very much, Dustin. Excellent. And to our audience, thank you for investing the time with us to explore others' experiences and ideas around technology adoption with frontline workers. Uh, hopefully you can take an idea from today and put it to work with the frontline teams that you support. Unless this is your first episode, you probably already know that this podcast is sponsored by Skillful. If it is your first uh, episode, I appreciate you joining and I hope you'll stick around and subscribe. Skillful is the only end-to-end -end systems training platform optimized for frontline operations. You can learn more about how you can solve your frontline systems training challenges by visiting skillful.com. That's S-K-Y-L-L-F-U-L.com. Thank you very much and look forward to you joining us on our next episode. Don, thanks again. Thank you very much.